0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Your Critically Acclaimed. This is the podcast here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, where our patrons get to sponsor an episode of their choice. Some of these episodes will go live to everybody. Some of them may be reserved for the people who record them or request them. That's the word I'm looking for, request. I'm not (laughs) starting the podcast over again. We're going to finish this masterpiece. Um, But uh, yeah, anything you want, there are some limitations, but we're just taking requests from our patrons at our top tier at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibbiani. I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My
1: name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a film critic and people call me Whitney Seibold. Because that's his
0: name. And this time on your Critically Acclaimed, we have an opportunity to fix an egregious wrong. Because neither Whitney nor I have seen the classic film that was requested by our patron, Nick Ebert. We have reviewed other films with the the same title and story so i've
1: i've seen a star is born Uh uh-huh and i've seen a star is born but this is my first time seeing a star is
0: born that's right it's a star is born
1: yes a star is born and in its splendor and deep emotional fire in its shining beauty and wonderful heart a new era in motion picture achievement is also born You'll see it in the richness and magnificence so lavishly poured into every scene. You'll feel it in the countless moments of deep human understanding. You'll hear it in the rousing tempo of its great music. And you'll know it when you experience the joy and jubilation of Judy Garland as the star. And you'll never forget James Mason as Norman Maine, clinging desperately to the only real
0: love he'd ever known. Okay, so a little history on A Star is Born. Uh, A Star is Born, you probably know, if you're unfamiliar with any of the other versions, you probably remember the version uh, directed by and starring Bradley Cooper and uh, featuring Lady Gaga. They won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. And that's a good movie. That's pretty good. It's well made. Like I like that movie.
1: I think it's veritably overrated. Um, I didn't get why... People got really, really emotional over that version of think, A Star is Born because it was been, so
0: hammy. I think it's just been a long time since there was like an earnest, like glossy melodrama of that kind that was being mm. sold to large audiences. That's true. It's, just, it's, yeah. That kind of film is kind of rare these days. Yeah, that, that kind of big sweeping all-star Hollywood melodrama with that kind of budget and that kind of sincerity uh, was Pretty much the norm for a long time in Hollywood, but nowadays people do not throw that much money and marketing power Definitely behind a not. love story that ends badly. <laughs> yeah. Like it's it happens, but it's not common, so it's cool when it does, and we can all rally behind things like, I don't know, the notebook or or A Star is Born. A Star Is Born is one of many remakes of A Star Is Born, a movie which is arguably a
1: remake. The first film to be called A Star is Born uh, was nominated for Best Picture in 1937. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we've seen that version. We covered it on
0: uh, Only the Best, our Oscars podcast. Which is a Patreon-only podcast Mm. in which we review every film ever nominated for Best Picture. And that version, starring Janet Gaynor and Frederick March, uh, is pretty much the version you've seen over and over and over again. The basic nuts and bolts of A Star is Born is... There is an alcoholic, aging, and fading movie star whose popularity is on the wane. He discovers a young talent quite by accident, but becomes completely, like, her mentor and tries to, like, get her to have a huge career. In the process, she rises as he falls. And just as she is achieving her greatest glory, he is achieving, achieving his greatest humiliation, And even though that they are in love, they are on, like, complete opposite trajectories, Mm -hmm. and it ends really badly for one of them. Try to guess which one. I bet you'll guess correctly. (laughs) Um, It's a story that is very simple, very potent. Hollywood loves telling it because it's sort of... Rips the bandaid off of the industry and just shows oh, and some kind of the scabrousness. It's 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 really quite vicious in the, most uh, versions. It,
1: it's also uh, worth noting that the reason that the big movie star is falling and suffering humiliation is because he's an alcoholic
0: in every version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, th- I said he's not alcoholic, but just so we're oh, okay, clear, like, yeah, he's, that's, he's, that's the his, main his, reason. His he's
1: drinking a- is going to be his ruin, and that's yeah. true in all four version, uh, major versions of A Star is Born.
0: Yeah, um, so the original version of A Star is Born, mm-hmm. uh, again, it was not much for Best Picture. It's considered a monumental film in terms of colorization. It was the first best picture to – first color
1: best picture nominee.
0: Yeah, it was. Uh, Again, black and white movies were the norm for a very long time. Uh, For many, many years, uh, black and white movies were tinted Mm. so that the whole scenes would be blue if they took place at night or red, if they took place in hell or if it was hot or something. That was not uncommon. But full colorization, where all of the different uh, elements of the film were colored more or less properly, um, that was actually a slow-going process. And there were a lot of films that were experimenting with it, a lot of different processes uh, that – Achieved color in slightly different ways. Sometimes they were quite beautifully faded, like watercolors. Sometimes they were very, very sharp, like Technicolor. Um, A Star is Born was considered like the first major film to get color cinematography correct because the colors looked pretty natural and they weren't like distracting or nauseating. Sometimes they were just <laughs> completely way off. Um, and it was considered quite the milestone at the time. Uh, that version of A Star is Born is fine.
1: I, I, it's, it's not amazing. It's okay. It's, it's fine. I think the big problem is that the Frederick March character is—he's uh, not a cad, but he's such a lout. Mm-hmm. He's just kind of abusive. He's such a jerk. Like he's not a jerk. He doesn't mistreat people openly. Yeah. But he's so unappealing. Yeah. That I'm not really sure why the Janet Gaynor character fell in love with him.
0: It's so tricky to get the the uh, uh, the what his name is usually um, Maine. Yeah. Sometimes it's Jackson Maine, sometimes it's Norman Maine, like it is in the nineteen fifty four version. But it's so hard to make that character work because they have to be likable, mm. lovable, but also self destructive and off putting, so that you actually believe that their career mm. is hitting the skids. No, but- that's hard to do. Some people lean too far into making them hard to hard to live with, hard to work with, hard to like. You have to find the right balance, and yeah, that's no, tricky.
1: I think. Um- Bradley Cooper was wise in casting himself as the role because he looks like Bradley Cooper. Yeah. That is to say, handsome, but suspect.
0: Uh, (laughs) Like a a, a
1: really good looking guy you want to slap.
0: You're not entirely sure he's not the guy who will betray the CIA at the end. Exactly. But he's also incredibly charming. Like Bradley Cooper Mm -hmm. is a very, very likable movie star. I like Bradley Cooper. He's a very good actor. Um, In in that movie especially. Yeah. I think that's his best performance. I think it's fair to say. Um, yeah, Frederick March is very good. Janet Gaynor uh was very, very good. Um, but uh yeah, the movie is short, punchy, it's surprisingly vicious about Hollywood for a movie set in the Hollywood system in the midst of the studio system in like nineteen thirty seven. Um and yeah, it's okay. Hmm. Uh then we had the nineteen fifty four version, which we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about, and we'll just skip over that for a second to give you a sense of context. Uh then there was the Barbara Streisand Chris Christopherson version of the seventies, which I still haven't seen.
1: I haven't seen. And um Seeing this story with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson makes me feel a little sick. Uh,
0: oh, because it's going to be so romantic, you're going to love every second
1: of it? Uh, uh, yeah, that's exactly why. Okay,
0: cool. And, of course, uh, there's the Bradley Cooper Lady Gaga version, which we've mentioned already, uh, which, again, is a very, very good interpretation that... That and I think the Stripesay movie shifted more into the music industry, whereas the first two were about Hollywood. But there's also another Star Is Born that people don't talk about that predates all the other Star Is Borns. There is a movie so Stars is Stars. All are the born? other stars are born. Okay. <laughs> uh, there is a movie called What Price Hollywood? Uh, which, much like A Star Is Born, is about uh, an older person in the film industry who discovers a young ingenue. Uh, he helps her career, and as she is rising and becoming a great star, he is falling. And then, on like the day when she like gets a big award, he suffers his greatest humiliation, and it ends in a very, very similar tragedy. Uh, a Star Is Born is not officially considered a remake. Of What Price Hollywood. But the parallels are very distinct, apparently. And the weirdest thing what, is... What year was What Price Hollywood? 1932. 32. okay. So it had been around for a bit. And it wasn't directed by, like, a nobody. Mm. It was directed by George Cuker.
1: Who directed the 1954 film.
0: Yeah. And apparently one of the reasons why he wasn't super interested in doing the 1954 film originally was he felt he had kind of done it already. Okay, But he... Came along anyway, and so we have the 1954 version of A Star is Born, directed by the great George Cukor, one of the best uh, filmmakers, especially of, like, romances and comedies I Mm. think we've ever had. And uh, as also starring Judy Garland at the height of her powers and James Mason at the complete apex of his sexiness. Like... Here's, I grew up with James Mason as the villain. He was the bad guy in North by Northwest. Oh. He was the bad guy in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. He was the evil lawyer, or evil, it's more on a bigger movie, but the, the, the bad guy lawyer in The Verdict. So I, think, when I see James Mason, I see a heavy. So it's well, weird to fact, see him as a romantic lead.
1: Uh, when I see James Mason, I see a pervert. Because I think the first movie I saw was Lolita. Yeah. The uh, first James Mason film I saw was Stanley Kubrick's version of Lolita, where he plays Humbert Humbert. and Yeah. Uh,
0: it's a very creepy film. Yeah,
1: I mean... The, well, it's, I, I think also it's, a villain in it's, it's a It's a creepy story. Yeah. And he's definitely a villain, but... Uh, the movie
0: plays it weird because it's yeah. from his perspective, so it's right, hard Right, right, right. And,
1: and yeah. it's also... Kubrick made it into like this kind of slapstick farce. It's really a bizarre movie. Yeah. Uh, it, and it's even though Nabokov wrote the screenplay it's like really far afield from the novel Mm. and the the there was a lot the 97 version is
0: actually way more not accurate to the book well there's a lot they couldn't do because of the production code in fact the Mm -hmm. whole uh, advertising there's there's, there's a lot you
1: still can't do it's about an adult having an affair with a 12 year old oh
0: true but my point is that the advertising campaign for Kubrick's Alita was how did they make this movie yeah yeah. like we don't even know how we we made a movie out of this Mm. like it's crazy
1: so I I look at James Mason I can only think of Humbert it's like oh god don't keep your children away from this guy
0: yeah yeah he's 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 played a lot of creeps and it's interesting to see him play a romantic lead now and, and it, here he, yeah. and
1: here's the thing i i complained that the frederick march character was difficult to love in the 1937 version
0: yeah
1: i feel like uh james mason is all is equally difficult to love but i think he's e- well balanced by judy garland mm who, uh, is not presented as an innocent. In yeah. this version, uh, Judy Garland was already in her 30s by the time they made this movie. Yeah. She's not some young 20-year-old who just came to Hollywood and is being indoctrinated into the big system. And girl, I'm going to make you a star, kind yeah. of routine. Yeah,
0: if you watch the original Star Is Born, she's literally from like a middle of nowhere town and like mm-hmm. runs away to try to make her dreams of being in Hollywood. Judy Garland in this movie starts out; she's a hardworking entertainer already. She's working at a show mm-hmm. where James Mason is showing up at like a live charity event. So she's already, she's already got talent. She's already got some ambition. She's already found a career. Mm. She's really, really... Yeah,
1: she's already working in the system. And while uh, Judy Garland herself was a young actress who moved to Hollywood from, I think, Minnesota, I believe. Yeah. uh, She, yeah, it was Minnesota. She... uh, Kind of had already shed that part of her screen persona, yeah by the mid fifties,
0: oh yeah, she was very, very much a yeah. studio star, and, and and I
1: think that really helps in her relationship with this older guy they're both. Veterans, essentially, yeah. of the system at this point, yeah. which means when they see weakness, they're willing to sort of cling on to each other a little bit more tightly mm-hmm. and be a lot more forgiving because they've both traversed these well, pathways before.
0: And I think, I think I, the thing that makes me really like initially, like when James Mason. So the movie begins, nineteen fifty-four version. Mm. Uh, doesn't doesn't dally, which is weird because it's like a three-hour movie, but it really is in a rush to get started. It starts at a big Hollywood event. It's a charity event. There's going to be a bunch of live shows. Mm-hmm. And uh, Norman Maine, one of the bigger movie stars at the time, played by James Mason, is supposed to show up. Problem is, he's mega drunk. Yep. Like, he's super duper falling on his face. Like, almost walking out on stage at inappropriate times. Like, you know... Jumping on horses and stuff like a real real problem Mm -hmm. and their whole and his handlers and everything are just like look we just need to get him on stage for like five minutes and then get him the fuck out of here because he's going to ruin everything Mm. Judy Garland is part of the stage show that uh, goes on when he can't go on when he's supposed to so she's like going up early. And they're doing a big musical number, and James Mason decides to walk out in the middle of the musical number, and Judy Garland, already a super professional, finds a way to save it mm. by like making it look like she's teaching him the dance moves in the middle of the song. It's a great little bit. And then afterwards, he kind of apologizes, but he's also a drunk and a cad. And at this point in the movie, I'm like, I don't like James Mason. I mean, I like James Mason, but I don't like this character. character yeah. This character Nor- is, Norman, is a, Norman Maine. Yeah, this character is not only is he a boisterous and annoying alcoholic, but he's which is, of course, a serious problem. And that's I have a lot of sympathy for that. But right now, I don't want to hang out with him. Um, but no, Siri, I don't want to hang out with you either. <laughs> Stop it, Siri. I heard you're talking about a Star is Born. Maybe I can help you with that. <laughs> Um, But I I didn't care for him, and I was worried this would be another situation where we had leaned too far into making this character unlikable in order Mm. to justify his career downfall. Over the course of the film, he completely wins me back because, he A, he's not creeping on Judy Garland. In fact, he has almost no romantic notions of her for the majority of the film. He's just about her career. He believes in her talent, He thinks that she has an incredible voice. He thinks that she could be a huge star and he knows how to get her there. He knows people and he actually is just her biggest fan. And I think that absolute just faith in another human being Mm -hmm. is a, what makes this character like very quickly redeemable Mm And B is what attracts Judy Garland, because she's already got a career, but the idea of having someone who actually has that much faith in her and thinks that she could not only work as a singer, but be genuinely great, uh-huh. that's the thing that connects to her and makes her love him. It's not that he's handsome. It's not that he's a movie star. Janet Gaynor was swept up in, in falling in love with a movie star. Yeah. Judy Garland gradually comes to well, appreciate I... that this guy really cares about her. And again, I, I think this is
1: a result of the fact that the characters are both a little older. uh. uh... You know, both a little wizened. Uh, if if it was about these people sort of falling in lust, you would think sex would be sort of the primary motivator for one of them, at least. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, very chaste But for it's, most it's of this inc- 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 movie. Uh, it's, it's incredibly chaste. And it, in fact, it's not even sort of a, a really sweeping romance. In fact, I think both James Mason, but especially Judy Garland, uh, is really good at... Maintaining the kind of fun little social elements of a romance as opposed to the big romantic gestures. It's not about going to the Eiffel Tower and standing on the top and kissing under the moon. It's about getting an apartment and playing games and having conversations. Yeah,
0: those are the parts that are theirs. This Mm -hmm. version of A Star is Born is especially good. At revealing some really uh, not the ugliest because there's no way they could do it in the production code, but <laughs> ugly shit about the studio system, mm. like really unpleasant stuff about the way that they. And if you know anything about Judy Garland, you know she knows oh, this. And, shit, and, yeah. and we need to talk about that. But the way we see uh, her character is Esther Blodgett, and she goes into the studio system, and he's Mason just gets her a role, mm. like gets her, a, gets her, a, uh, like we're gonna put you like on the studio roster, and. The implication is she'll probably do a couple of Chorus lines and then get the hell out of here like most people But Norman Maine Believes in her Mm. so he's gonna keep pushing Uh but like that Early system of her like going Through the studio system and like Everyone's just like hey great to have you on board I have literally no time for you Like no one cares Mm. Like it's always good to have more people on the team But that's as far as I'm gonna go in terms of Pleasantries I'm busy goodbye Mm -hmm. Uh the day she founds out that they changed her name is hilarious because, like, she's going to pick up her paycheck. That's right, and, and it's the wrong name. Like, it's already
1: yeah. been changed.
0: Yeah, like, she goes, like, and and what they do is there's a couple of lines, and, like, it's just, oh, A through G is at this booth. H through M is at this booth, and so on. And she goes to the B booth, and they're just like, Esther Blodgett, oh, no, you're Vicki Lester now. I'm what? <laughs> <laughs> and for a moment, for a moment, she's just like... That's not so bad. <laughs> Could have done worse. <laughs> At least it's got Esther in there somewhere. Like, uh,
1: wouldn't it have been funny if instead of uh, Vicky Lester they said you're you're going to be Franny Gum? <laughs> <laughs> Just something weird. Well, that's that's Judy Garland's real name. Oh, is it really? Yeah, Gum.
0: Wasn't there a, a a Cary Grant movie where his character's name was Archie Leach? No, well, you're thinking of a fish called Wanda. John Cleese's character was named Archie. Leach. I Leech, thought there was, that was really. one where they joked about Cary Grant being Archie Leach as well. Because that that's. Carrie Grant's real name, yeah, Archibald Leach was yeah. Carol Grant. Yeah, Carrie Grant's real name, yeah. fun Fra- name by the way. Francis Ethel Gum
1: is Judy Garland's birth name. <laughs>
0: Didn't know that. That's yeah.
1: fun. And uh, she was uh, she was born in Minnesota. She lived most of her life in Hollywood. She was buried in New York. Mm. Uh, she died in I think she died in Paris. Mm. Um, actually, I don't know where she died. Uh, but she was buried in New York, and then a couple of years ago, they moved her corpse to Hollywood again. Ah, that's weird. Yeah, like in 2017. I don't know I don't why. why. That's
0: odd. Not- um, Maybe they were getting rid of that f- cemetery That's entirely yeah, possible yeah, The yeah. whole poltergeist thing um, can't, can't leave the bodies down there You moved uh, the graves but you didn't move the bodies Yeah we've all seen poltergeist we know we can't do that um, but, uh, but we also see how the studio system Basically enables Norman Maine's alcoholism mm. They don't care that he's alcoholic they just care that he's pliable that he's Like pliable they'll just shove also- him in a car He's drunk we're gonna shove him in a car And if he wakes up in Bermuda while he's filming The new movie so be it We own him
1: mm. There, there's that and there's also this uh, this idea that if he – and there's a bit of like a, a tabloid uh, mm. like hawkery uh, floating around him in that if he screws up and he makes a story, then that's good press.
0: Yeah. It's it like, could be fun to see this. go. Oh, yeah, what's the – let's,
1: let's, let's laugh at the yeah. drunk and that maybe yeah. gets us a good story.
0: Yeah. Anything for the studio. And when they actually – when they fall in love and they go to the studio, they don't just get married. They go to the studio and ask if it's okay. Mm. Which is kind of fucked up in general And there's this great bit where they come in and say Yes we're in love, we're getting married And there's a long pause mm. From the studio head And Judy Garland's like why isn't he saying anything He's trying to decide if this is good or bad for the studio And he is <laughs> And their initial thought is you know what This is fine, she's a rising star He's a, he's a falling star, maybe it'll all equalize And so we're going to make a big deal We'll make it a big wedding And our heroes Decide to elope and just get married in, like, a justice of the peace in some small town, completely ruining everything because their marriage is theirs. Mm. And you're right. I think the sweetest scenes in the movie are just the, them together. There's a wonderful scene after uh, Norman Maine's career has completely like imploded. Like, no one wants to work with them. He lost his contract with the studio. And he's just at home all day. She comes home after shooting a big scene And she recreates the whole scene from him Just in their living room mm. And it's a really, really great bit And you see them really connecting with each other And they know what they're talking about And they love it And only a few parts of the song are ridiculously racist uh, Yeah,
1: 1954 for ya There it is there's,
0: there's some, Judy, Judy Garland
1: did a number in blackface once so, oh, yeah. you know, she, And in fact, She, she was does, raised in that Hollywood
0: She does a number, a part of a number uh, In this movie uh, called Swanee uh, mm. Which is uh, considered a classic tune But the, it's a riff on Swanee River. Yeah. And uh, you can tell based on her garb, like what she is wearing exactly, that in the movie within a movie in which it is, it was designed as a movie for people in blackface. Yeah, no. Like she's wearing the pants, she's wearing the gloves, mm. got it it's all it's there. A it's a min-
1: min- minstrel show. Straight yeah. out
0: of Al Jolson. Like, and it's just. Fortunately, she's not actually in the blackface because then it, like, goes in from extremely, like, awkward to I'm having. Can we turn this off? Mm. because it's completely offensive and wrong. But, like, there's a lot of elements of that that... It's not the whole movie, and the movie's, like, three hours, so the actual overall percentage is, is you know, relatively small for mm. the era, but there will be moments in this movie where you're going to go, I want to like this scene so much, but why, <laughs> why, why did this song like turn like, racist uh... all of a sudden? It's like, so
1: weird. It's like some of the best film dancing you'll ever see is the Bojangles number in Swing Time. Yeah. And Fred Astaire is just in blackface yep. in that number. And it was the 1930s. That was just something people did.
0: Yeah. And it was never cool, like just, but it was just, something that was common. It's just
1: hideously racist, and yeah. that's what Hollywood is doing at the time. So th-
0: there's there's not a lot
1: of that in here, but there are
0: bits. And if you know what to look for, you know, like what they're riffing on and what they're doing, then some of it is, some of it's more obvious than others, but a lot of it's in there. Mm. Um, and that's frustrating, because otherwise it's, it's very, very strong. Um, the other thing about this movie that I really want to make sure we give a lot of attention to, because James Mason is wonderful. Mm. Judy Garland is wonderful. The whole supporting cast is good. The cinematography is god level. I am dead serious This is one of the Best looking movies I've ever seen From the 1950s uh, The whole decade
1: Luckily this is One of those movies That's been like Maintained It's been cleaned up There are probably Films that have Comparable levels Of masterful photography That weren't as popular So if you If we see it today In 2020 It's going to be faded Or they didn't like Remaster it on a VHS Or something
0: Yeah uh, this uh, is uh, this is an early cinemascope movie. Cinemascope is an extremely wide screen process.
1: Yes, uh, cinemascope debuted in 1953 with a film called The Robe. Okay, so it's right on the heels of that because yeah. uh, this is what 54? Uh, 54. 54, and in yeah. fact, um, 54 is a really just a, a little bit of shop talk for a second. Uh, as a projectionist, 1954 is the biggest bugaboo mm. uh, if you're trying to find the right lens and the right aspect ratio because it's ambiguous. A lot of films in 1954 were shot uh, with the old Academy ratio, 1.1.37 to 1 yeah. uh, in mind, but capable of being projected at a wider aspect ratio, maybe yeah. 1.66 6, uh, or even a 1.75 or 1.85, which ended up being kind of the, the standard. All of them are correct is the problem. <laughs> And there's even been some ambiguity as to, like, what a perfectionist like Stanley Kubrick wanted his films to be shot in. Like, he shot them with an open aperture so they could be projected in 133 if you wanted to. But maybe he wanted them in 177 and maybe he wanted them framed a certain way. And sometimes he sent notes directly to the projectionist. But even those notes are contested because he was shooting differently. Uh, so it, it's nice to have a nice widescreen... Unambiguous film from 1954. Yeah, it's clearly, that is this, clearly is the, this is clearly made in cinema is Definitely
0: the aspect ratio. So,
1: so you get a Star is Born in a projection booth. You're like, oh thank fuck! <laughs> <laughs> I I know which lens to use. I don't have to like call managers or yeah. you know film experts and get well, their and opinions it, as to what this needs. to be. And it's happened
0: before. There are like when when technology shifts in the industry oftentimes there's this kind of hazy area where movies have to be like screened in different ways for a while because not everyone's caught up. I'm thinking of example, for the very start of the sound era Mm. of cinema, where we would make a sound movie. However, not every theater this is going to play at has speakers yet. So we need to make sure there's a silent version as well. So for the first couple of years of the sound era, there are two equally valid versions of a lot of films. Mm. Usually the sound version is what has survived, but not necessarily. Um, but the, the photographer is named Sam Leavitt,
1: uh, or maybe it's Leavitt.
0: Mm. Spelled Leavitt. And, uh, Levitt, and like, uh, yeah. he
1: uh, he won a bunch of Oscars because mm. he was such an expert photographer. He uh, ph- uh, photo- This was one of his earlier films. He'd only done three films before Star is yeah. Born. Uh, and he photographed things like The Man with the Golden Arm. He did The Wild Party. He did Anatomy of a Murder, which he got an Oscar nomination for. Guess did, Who's Coming, to, uh, dinner, guess who's coming fear. to Dinner, He did Exodus, uh, yeah. which he also got an Oscar nomination for. Exodus, really, really boring movie. Amazing uh, score, though. Great score.
0: One of the all-time great scores, yeah, period. Everybody,
1: everybody can hum, hum that one. Bum,
0: bum, 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 bum. That's, that's Exodus. That's great Exodus score. But it's um, boring. Movie, but, but the way that this movie is shot, I really want to focus on this, because this is one of the best-looking movies I've ever seen about Los Angeles. Okay. The, the vistas at night that is absolutely wonderfully juxtaposed with these sort of Working class, growing city during the day. Like there's a bit where they're going to a preview of one of Judy Garland's movies, mm-hmm. and they she has she's feeling nauseous, so she has to get out of the car. And like a like it's just sh- a short hop, skip, and a jump from a, from this big glitzy movie theater, and it's an oil derrick and a few isolated buildings. Like it's still L. <laughs> a. LA was still very much an evolution, mm. and. This is a movie that is actually very uncommon for the time in that it is not afraid to let characters drop into shadow. Like, there is a A lot of darkness. Usually that's something that was reserved for, like, film noirs or horror movies at the time, to see a romance movie with this much inky shadow. Well, it's a showbiz movie, so it's
1: it's sort of juxtaposing the shadows and the spotlights. And, of course, how how appropriate that it's about fame as well.
0: Yeah, Uh, there's a lot of wonderful uh, uh, framing in here where... Because we're working in CinemaScope, we have a, a big wide screen. I think the temptation is to do a lot of vistas. And they find a way to do like intimate scenes with vistas simultaneously. There will be like scenes on someone's patio and it's just a two hander, but there is a gorgeous reflection, and it's probably like projected on purpose, but a gorgeous reflection of the beach. Mm. crisp and clear, filling the frame behind them so they're in the house and they're on the beach simultaneously and then someone will walk in behind the window that has that reflection and they're silhouetted against it like they're in a completely different movie Mm. and my eyes just explode (laughs) from how gorgeous it is there are whole scenes where you can see like four or five different rooms going on simultaneously and they're all filmed and lit slightly differently. They do a really nice trick where when they have like People in the background, like, maybe they're in, like, a recording booth or something, because there's a lot of behind-the-scenes backstage stuff. In order, I think, to help clarify that they're not just, like, right there next to them, because there's a lot of, like, Mm. photography that's very, very sharp. There's a lot of diffusion of people in the background, and it creates this gorgeous, multi-layered, just fucking wedding cake of a movie, where Mm. every, every single individual piece is delicious and distinct. The coloring is amazing. The the lighting is astounding. This is seriously one of the best looking movies I've seen in a really long time. Obviously, came out almost seventy five years ago, but lately, like I haven't seen a movie that looks this. I've seen maybe two or three movies that look this good in like the last couple of years. Like mm-hmm. this is gorgeous cinema. Like wowzers.
1: Yeah. Uh, my th- this probably speaks to sort of the paltriness of my own imagination, mm-hmm. but. This is my first time seeing it. Yep, mine too. And I was kind of dreading seeing it just because I knew the knew the story of all of the Stars Is Born. Yeah, I was kind of worried uh, it would feel kind of redundant. The, like, well, yeah. not just redundant. Before I had seen any of these Stars Is Born, I was kind of reluctant to see any of them. Yeah, because it sounded like such a corny, melodramatic plot. Uh, you know, I, I knew what it was about—the rise of a, a, a starlet and the fall of an alcoholic—and there's going to be a lot of weeping. And I assumed it was going to be like love story.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, by the way, love story. Bad movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I actually. I, I, w-
1: I want to clarify. Love, story, love is story is the movie. And affair to Remember
0: is based on, which is the mm. movie that Sleepless in Seattle ripped off. Yeah. Um, love. I still argue that I'm gonna. I haven't. I'm gonna rewatch Love Story, oh. and I've rewatched Affair to Remember not that long ago. I think Love Story is actually. Oh, I'm sorry. Love. I'm thinking Love Affair. Love Affair. No no, love, no. 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 You're right. Love. Sorry. Love Story. Love, I actually. Love, sto- love Story is. Ah, the, oh, the they're the one so generic where... titles. Where, uh, love Affair was the movie that. Ryan O'Neill and yeah.
1: Allie McGraw fall in love and Allie McGraw I, dies of an unknown disease. It's called Ally McGraw, McGraw disease. disease it's, yeah. when,
0: uh, it's when you're dying for an extended period of time, but it but doesn't y- affect how good you look. Y- you
1: have no symptoms whatsoever.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, apologies. I was thinking of the. And they're, they're not unsimilar. Uh, love Affair, which is a story about an extramarital affair. Mm. There's a lot of tragedy to it. Led to a wonderful, uh, or at least celebrated remake mm. uh, with Cary Grant and Deborah Kerr uh, called Unfair to Remember. It was eventually remade in the 90s with Warren Beatty and Annette Bening, and it was a huge influence on the movie so was in Seattle. I thought you were referring to that no, because that's no. also a weepy romantic melodrama. It's a weepy
1: – no, but okay. it's, it's not nearly as bad as something like Love Story. And I've never seen yeah. Love Story. So. Okay. I, I've seen Love Story, and I saw the sequel as
0: well. I n- no one ever talks about how this – I've been meaning to do a double <laughs> yeah. feature. How is the sequel to Love Story?
1: Uh, well, it's, it opens with Ally McGraw's What's it called again? Funeral. It's called something weird. It's, it's like Ryan's story. Whatever the yeah. character's name is, like Ryan's story. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, that's not the name of the character. Yeah, but yeah, it's about how he finds a, a new love and how this new love is actually a much more, uh, much more take charge kind of person. She's a, a very powerful executive and. Uh, I actually don't recall what her actual job is, but right. she has she has a lot of sort of professional clout, and she's not going to take any guff, and she doesn't have the love-means-never-having-to-say-you're-sorry vibe about her at all.
0: Uh, the the sequel's called Oliver's, Oliver's Story. Oliver's
1: Story, excuse me.
0: Yeah. Ally McGraw and Oliver. Which also starred Ryan O'Neill and had uh, Candace Bergen in it instead.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and, and she's a much more interesting person, and the, mm-hmm. the drama is can this really boring guy love a much more interesting person than his first love? Uh, <laughs> that's really, that's <laughs> seriously the drama. Uh, but, <laughs> oh God, it's so bad. It's, it's, uh, it's the source of one of my favorite gags on eraser on uh, on a uh, like, critic.
0: I oh, you were going to say eraser head. No, well, okay. it,
1: it, it goes to eraser head. Uh, there's a bit where uh, Jay Sherman, the, the character on the critics says, falls in love with a young, a uh, young woman and says, she says, why don't you come over? We'll crack open a bottle of champagne, sit in front of the fire and watch Love Story. And he says, make it cookies, the refrigerator and eraser head. And you got a deal. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I sadly, I was su- such a fool that I put it in my head. I'm going to use that line on the lady someday. <laughs> Some, some lady is going to invite me over for something romantic and I'm going to say cookies, the fridge, and erase her head. And she's not going to get it and I'm not going to get a date after all.
0: Oh, there's, a but, cer- there's a certain group of people who that sounds like a
1: really good night. Myself included. <laughs> <laughs> will just eat cookies in front of the fridge and watch this disgusting nightmare of a movie. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I felt that going into something like A Star is Born, it would go, it was going to be nothing but these really maudlin scenes of people weeping at each other and – Penetrating scenes of people staring out windows for a long, long, long time, and after a while, you just realize you're watching a movie about people staring out windows. Uh, my, my imagination wasn't prepared for what this A Star's Board was going to be. I didn't realize there was going to be this much music in it. For
0: first yeah, of all, this one's uh, a proper musical. It's yeah. a proper
1: musical. Uh, Judy Garland is really, really great. Uh, she's at just the right age where you can see that she's lived a little. Yeah. She actually looks older than she is in this movie. And uh, well, I think that flavors her performance in a certain way. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and again, if you know anything about Judy Garland's life, you know how badly abused she was by the Hollywood system.
0: Yeah. It's actually kind of ironic that we're doing this version of A Star is Born and Judy Garland is playing the Judy Garland character because, it, and and this is just weird, her life far more closely parallels James Mason's character yeah, in that yeah. she was raised in the system. They either enabled or turned a blind eye to substance abuse, and frequently both. Um, and they chewed her up and yeah. they spit her out. Her life is very, very tragic and incredible. Mm. And... She was so fucking talented, and nobody took care of her, or at least no. nobody with enough power to actually make a difference. Uh, and R-
1: Renee Zellweger just won an Academy Award for playing Judy Garland right at the end of her
0: life. Yeah, and that's a good performance. I like that movie. Um, she, she died when she was 47, by the way, so yeah, she was young. Way, 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 way too young by any measure. She was incredibly talented. She lived really, really hard, and she was already... Had a reputation for being unreliable because of her various you know, substance addictions and yeah. everything yeah. else that was going on in her life. Uh, it's one of the reasons oh, the the okay. role of the, the
1: uh, producer is of this movie. In fact, was Sydney Luft?
0: Yeah, hmm. who was uh, married to her? Yeah, uh, they they she had done a radio I'm version sure of *Star Wars:
1: Born*. Were they married when they made this movie? I well, think they, they were let already let married. Check
0: that. Uh, but uh, they uh, they she'd done a radio version, and they wanted mm. to do a feature film version, like a remake. And, yeah, they, um,
1: they were married at this point.
0: The role of uh, uh, Norman Maine mm. uh, was actually turned down by a lot of actors. A lot of them apparently didn't want to play a has-been. Like, we're looking for an older actor who just as clearly is on the way down and is, like... Being forced to take like secondary roles in movies, you know, like this one, mm. and as a result, people like Humphrey Bogart, Marlon Brando, Montgomery Clift, Gary Cooper, Henry Fonda, Errol Flynn, Cary Grant, Ray Milland, Gregory Peck, Tyrone Power, Frank Sinatra, James Stewart, and Robert Taylor all didn't get the role. <laughs> Some of them had different reasons, uh, like studio heads thought Frank Sinatra just couldn't sell tickets at the time. Mm. Um, and apparently Cary Grant, who I think George Kuker really wanted to, to work with again, they'd worked with each other many times, uh, he really, really wanted him. I think he would have been great. But apparently, A, he was wanting to focus more on his marriage at the time. Okay. Apparently he'd also turned down like Roman Holiday and a few other things, like just okay. because he wanted to be... Oh, he would have been great at Roman Holiday. It would have been great, right? That and Sabrina would have been amazing. But, uh... Uh, also, uh, he had heard that Judy Garland was not in a great place, and mm-hmm. it might not be a good production because no. she could disappear for a while, or you know, fall into substance and, abuse. And, and, and again, this,
1: a, a lot of those stories yeah. you hear, and of course, this is this all comes out you know decades after the fact as oh, they're an unreliable. Only women get that they're mm-hmm. unreliable; you can't trust them. It, those are like. Scuttlebutt rumors and stories that are deliberately Spread to sabotage actors career
0: Like you might remember like when Joker came out They were talking about like yeah Joaquin Phoenix was so Into his character that one time he just like left The set you know Mm. like a peak of Creative whatever and I'm like anyone else Would have been like and They're unreliable because that's what that is That's unprofessional
1: behavior it's unprofessional behavior, but keep in mind, like uh, in in the wake of the Weinstein scandal, yeah, how many actors uh, whose whose careers were ruined by this monster? Uh, no, 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 I'm, because he said those very things about like Mira Sorvino. You can't trust exactly. her because she's unreliable. She's not unreliable. She has no substance abuses. Yeah, she's completely professional, but she got that reputation. No, no, no I agree and because when, of this horrible system and specifically that horrible man.
0: And I'm just suggesting that there's a double standard here mm-hmm. where there are people who are actually doing that kind right. of stuff who are, are unreliable, yeah. and yet there still getting all of these Mm. big roles and stuff and you'll notice that they're mostly men to say and, that's bullshit.
1: And, and there's also uh, like young actresses who are who
0: are indeed unreliable, um, yeah, I'm and, and actors as well. You know, People yeah, who are unreliable. That's just life. Like, uh, but uh, like the, yeah. the
1: story of Lindsay Lohan is a very sad one because most of those stories actually are true. They're they're substantiated about and, how she didn't show up on Saturday. But like Judy Garland, she, she was a, the way she was a child wanted. in the studio system. They yeah, yeah. did not
0: take very good care of her. She yeah, fell she she into was a lot of up, like, yeah, like horribly by the studio. And system. she's fair, and like Judy Garland in a different way, but she's very very talented. And it's really not fair what happened to her, and it sucks. She, I don't. I don't think she'll ever act again. But she uh, has a Lindsay Lohan has a career
1: as a resort owner now.
0: Oh, is she really? Yeah, she she uh, had she's this, done a little acting. I know she's done a little bit of TV spots. Here a, and a there. little bit here yeah. and there.
1: But yeah, she she fled the country. She started spending a lot of time on like resorts in Greece, just to get away from it all and spend time on beaches and be in nature. Yeah. And she liked it so much, she says,
0: "I'll just buy this." Why not? So she just bought a resort, now you you can have... now you can go stay at Lohan Resorts. No, that sounds nice. I didn't yeah. know about that. Um. But in any case, Judy Garland is, it's really interesting to see her do these incredible long scenes of her talking about how difficult it is to be in love with and uh, the, the support system for someone with substance abuse because hmm. she probably knows what it's like on both ends of that. And it, I think it informs her performance. She gives an incredible performance here. She lost the Best Actress Oscar. Uh, Groucho Marx called that like the biggest robbery since Brinks. Which is a good line, Terry Groucho line. Um, but apparently, according to uh, like the gossip columnists of the time, they did some digging, apparently she lost by six votes.
1: Oh jeez.
0: That's that's probably why they people are always like, oh, I wish they'd release the votes. That's why. Mm. When you lose by six, and you're just like, A, it cheapens the person who won, and B, it makes you feel even worse. Like, oh come on, I don't know, six people. Six people <laughs> couldn't have made this a tie. <laughs> Steve, did you vote for me? Sure, Steve.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna look up the 1954 Oscars. See yeah, what I think, think she there. lost
0: to Grace Kelly. If okay. Um. But uh, so she's again, she's really, really wonderful, and you're right; it is a big old musical. The thing that I didn't care for in this movie, besides the bits of racism, which mm-hmm. suck. I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna say it. I don't think the songs are that good.
1: They're not hummable. Well, no. some of them are because they're um, they're standards. They're standards.
0: They're like you standards. knew them already, but yeah. But the majority of the new mm-hmm. songs, she sings the shit out of them. She's amazing, mm-hmm. but they don't feel like they are integral to the scene. Mm-hmm. Like it, they feel like I mean, it's important that she's singing. What she's singing doesn't always. The lyrics can be really uh, uh, clunky a lot of the times. The the Songs aren't particularly melodic a lot of the time, and it just. <sighs> It's just not amazing. It's, it's a shame because it starts out really strongly. The first number is great, yeah, but uh, yeah.
1: To be fair, uh, Judy Garland up that year at the Academy Awards was up up against Grace Kelly, who won for a film called The Country Girl, mm-hmm. which I've not seen. Yeah, uh, Dorothy Dandridge in Carmen Jones, Ooh. Uh, Audrey Hepburn in Sabrina, wow, and Jane Wyman in Magnificent Obsession. So it was, it was that's a, pretty, a big it was year. Pretty big year. That's a
0: stacked year, but she still only lost by six, mm-hmm. according to the story. And that
1: was that was the year. Uh, on the waterfront, kind of swept through. Brando mm. got best acting. Oh, and yeah,
0: so that um, was a big year for method acting, where everyone's just like, yeah. "Oh, we're changing what acting is now." No. Um, which on the waterfront was very much at the forefront of. Yeah, they the waterfront Same,
1: also won an Oscar for On the Waterfront. On the water forefront. On the water, forefront. On the, water the forefront of the water. On the fore waterfront. On the waterfront is a great movie. It by is. The way. It's yeah. a legitimately
0: great movie. D- director's a cad, but yeah. good movie. Um, but uh, sorry, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of the numbers. None of the numbers, with the exception of the ones that are kind of racist—again, not super racist—but there are bits in them that are. Mm. You'll, you'll them, recognize you'll it. You'll recognize yeah. it when it happens. But like, the majority of them are just sort of fine. Like they're not like they're not ruining the movie. I just feel like we could be moving on. The one that I actively dislike, even though there are bits in it that are cool, mm-hmm. born in a trunk. <laughs> which by the way that is a terrible name for anything no no that's a showbiz term uh, it's a terrible name it's i don't ter- care it's a terrible oh, name i don't care if it's the showbiz term that's an uh, that is an ugly look. like series of words that, was, that does not lend itself well to melody well, the, Unc, b- born Unc a- is not a great <laughs> syllable for a song <laughs> Give was, me a song called "unk" that doesn't was, go "unk, unk, unk." Like, ignore that. Like, you can't uh, "unk" a song. What like, about it's not... some like Grandmaster of Funk? Uh... Funk is different. <laughs> unk is not. But it's not "unk." It's trunk. Exactly. It's not, Bad. Bo- not like "born with my unk." Okay, I want you to. I want you to imagine George Clinton and the Parliament Trunkadelic. We've got the trunk, <laughs> but It's all of a sudden it's not cool. Why? Because it's not funk. It's a trunk. Wonder if it's a man. big box with a latch on it. Do you suppose,
1: That's not fun. I suppose they tried to license that song for, like, like some trunk manufacturer tried to license the song. for Yeah, anime. getting all those
0: ads you see over trunks. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think so. <laughs> we'd, be,
1: we'd be neck deep in trunks if they had licensed that song.
0: Just before the intermission in A Star Is Born. And the movie is about three hours long, and we will talk about the different versions of it in a second. But just before the intermission in A Star Is Born, they go to see a preview of... Of Judy Garland's first big starring role. At least the implications are starring role. She might just have like a big featured number or whatever. We only see a bit of it. They go to the movie, and it's really great. And it's one of those moments where it really made me like Norman Maine. Because this whole thing is, listen, there's going to be a preview. They're going to do a double feature. And the best possible thing for you, since you're the B feature, is that the A feature sucks. <laughs> so as long as it sucks, uh-huh. they're going to love you. And then they get to the theater, and he realizes it's his latest movie. And he's like, "This is perfect. This is a terrible movie." Yeah, <laughs> I like how, how frank he is about that. <laughs> yeah, he is not. He is. I love Norman Maine because he likes working, but he's very frank, and he just totally mm. admits, "I don't always make good movies." You, on the other hand, are going to be amazing. Like, you'd be mm. a great agent. That's what he should have <laughs> done. He should have quit acting and become an amazing agent. That would have been a great career path for him, because um, he, he's great at finding talent. He knows everyone in the industry. They don't want to work with him, but I'm sure they like talking to him, so... Um. But they go to see this preview, and we see... First off, it, this sequence wasn't apparently directed by George Cukor. Apparently oh, okay. he left, right. and they had to shoot this whole bit. But it's just... We see this bit, and she's singing Swanee, and then it pauses, and she like sits down on the stage, and she talks about how she rose to fame. She was born in the show business, and she rose to fame, and she was in chorus lines, and she tried to find work in various places, and then eventually she found her career... And I do not like this number. And the reason why, A, it's really long and stops the movie dead. B, the story that she's telling doesn't relate to the movie that we're seeing. We're seeing a movie about a rise to stardom, but it's not that rise to stardom. That seems like it's more about maybe Judy Garland, but it's not really. This is just a separate, no, I, unrelated thing I, that we just have okay. to sit through.
1: First of all, it is unrelated; and it is something we need to sit through. And occasionally, I have no problems with that. Yeah. Now, I'm on record with how much I hate the got a dance number and Sing It in the rain.
0: I don't hate uh, it, but it feels like it belongs in a different it, film. Yeah,
1: it's 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 out of place. Uh, yeah. And I admit that I fast forward through that sequence because yeah. I think it
0: just I'm swept stops, up, stops the film dead. I'm swept up in the uh, characters and the story and everything else. And, and then this, this is like a completely unrelated. This Twenty-seven
1: narrative. minute musical montage that has nothing to do with anything. Just yeah.
0: interrupts the movie. Like. It's wonderful in and of itself But yeah In the movie it doesn't work And I argue that's it's, probably it's not, true here It's
1: not really 27 Well I think But this one goes A little bit Because this is a movie about fame yeah. This one goes a little bit More thematically To what a star is born is about Yeah Which is uh, About how fame Is always sold as Something very romantic In fact it's sold as something that we see a little bit more in the 1937 A Star is Born about the young okay. ingenue who comes to the big city. A famous person says, I'm going to make you a star kid, and they actually do it. Okay,
0: okay.
1: The 1937 film argues that there's a dark th- uh, side to that because the person who discovers you isn't always a good person. In fact, yeah. uh, Hollywood is lousy with bad people. Yeah. Uh, but I think that sort of will make you a star routine, uh, which you'd sell in like Busby Berkeley
0: movies. Yeah
1: about young people who come to Hollywood and make it big, is still something that's part of the, the consciousness even today.
0: So you're saying uh, that so Born saying in a Trunk offers a dramatic contrast between how Hollywood sells itself and how a star is born is portraying it, which is a bit more uh, uh, gritty. Exactly. That's my point. I can see that. Born, born I in yeah, I mean, And, I, and, and, I still and the whole I, idea of mm. Born in
1: a Trunk is part of popular culture. Cher sang about it.
0: Yeah. was okay. born in the wagon of a traveling show. No, 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 that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I see your point. Mm-hmm. I still find it digressive, and I don't think it sells that concept very well, yeah, well but I see what you're... And, but I at think the same time... T- I think if they were selling the concept mm-hmm. well, they would have gone a little further in terms of making that seem more glitzy, because there are bits in Born in a Trunk where it's like her trying to just get a job anywhere, mm. and her trying to use Feminine Wiles to get it, and everyone saying no, and then the one guy who says yes, she's like, oh, hell no. Actually, I didn't actually mean that. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. That's not actually what I want. Yeah. And like, there's there is some unpleasantness built into Born in a Trunk as well, so I don't think it's really but we're providing not, yeah. the best contrast to the story we're seeing.
1: I suppose not, but it is a performative version of a fame fantasy. Mm. Also, the movie's three hours long. It is a big musical, and again, despite my complaints about Got to dance. I I don't have, in principle, any problems with stopping a film for the uh, the cause of spectacle. Yeah. Uh, spectacle and opulence is the reason we have cameras. We like to film big, glitzy things and a big visual display of actual dancing and singing talent mm-hmm. in the middle of a musical film, even if it has nothing to do with anything, mm-hmm. is totally okay.
0: Now, keep in mind. I just think pacing is an issue.
1: Uh, if you look at sort of the broad history of musical theater and the way it evolved and the way songs were used within musicals, mm-hmm. uh, the modern idea that songs need to feed into the narrative is actually a lot more modern than you think.
0: Yeah, it's only about it's not, like 70 years old. Yeah,
1: like it wasn't until Oklahoma that that became really sort of stringently codified.
0: Yeah, the, like songs need to push mm-hmm. the story or the and or the characters forward and if mm-hmm. not, there's no purpose for them. I used to believe that that's what a true musical was. I didn't realize how much of an asshole I was. Like, <laughs> well, that's, I not, mean, that's not strictly true, is it? That's that's not the way musicals mm. need to work. They're it not... might be a way you like, but it's not necessarily that. The musicals just need to have a bunch of musical numbers no, in them, don't they? And that's and all it, that really and it, matters. It debuted
1: on Broadway in the mid 40, 40s, 40, 45, 43, mm. 43, Oklahoma. I don't know. It's, it's It was in the 40s. Yeah. So my point was yeah. there there was generations of musicals before Oklahoma. Yeah that didn't do that in the same sort of way. Maybe there were a few along the way, but Oklahoma was the one that gets some Well, the, like the, the Ziegfeld Follies
0: uh, were just b- reviews. They, yeah, they were just yeah, exactly. you know, one like, musical number after or, another. Or you
1: look at, you know, some like Cole Porter stuff, like anything goes. It's like the, the musicals will stop so you can just have a little bit of a dance number. 42nd Street... The musicals, you know, the musical numbers are about being on stage and performing that musical within the musical, so they don't but necessarily the actual musical of the story. Well, they
0: kind of into the story because they're about people performing them, but the musical yeah. numbers themselves aren't about anything in particular. Yeah, I mean, they're about stuff, but they're not about the plot. Exactly. Yeah. So that okay, that, that one's gonna... better integrated than most because they're performers and there's a justification. Well, and that, it, that yeah. was
1: true of a lot of musicals. Yeah. It's that we'll make a musical about performers. That way we have this kind of organic excuse to have a lot of performances in yeah. our show. And then there's also performances backstage so we can just double up on the music. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you go back to, you know, gigantic hits like Showboat. They didn't move the story forward. Mm. And I think, uh, you know... This is coming in 1954. This is you know, a generation of people were raised on the old and have had, had a taste of the new.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, this idea that songs need to move the story forward was only about a decade old at this point. Yeah. So we're still operating on an old musical mold. And I think a lot of musicals today still operate on that mold. I think if you go to, to like a big broadly commercial one that's based on a Disney film – they're going to make sure they move the story forward. Because mm-hmm. I think that's what modern audiences are a little bit more used to. Generally. Especially uh, when you look at musical films, especially animated musical films. Yeah.
0: I think they, but they I, I try think to on... make sure the bangers, like the ones they expect mm-hmm. to break out, could be heard in a vacuum. Like right. most of the songs in Frozen are about the plot of Frozen. Mm. Let It Go could be totally heard with no context and you totally get it.
1: That I, I remember when I saw Frozen. And as soon as uh, uh, Let It Go played, I leaned over to my wife and said... That is every 17 year old girl's audition piece to get into college. Yeah, that's like that's you just
0: knew the second you heard that that song is going to be huge.
1: Well, I, I didn't know it was going to be huge, I did. but I knew that like theater kids were going to latch on to that one, which
0: I think is yeah. what makes it which, huge, which,
1: which, which is one of the things that, <laughs> yeah. that happened among it being huge, yeah. Uh, well, fair enough. Uh, fair but enough. When, but, so, yeah. so the fact that they stop the story and just sing a song is part of a musical tradition that was still in play at the time, and I, I don't I, have big issues with it. I
0: didn't case. object to the idea of it. Mm-hmm. I objected to how long it was, and I think that although I see your point about it providing a contrast, mm-hmm. I don't think they sell that contrast very well. So I, I think it's in there. It's, it's not in, explicit. It's not, though. It's I not agree, the best not part of the explicit, film. It's not the, yeah. Can we agree it's not the best part of the film? It's not the best part of Okay, it. fair enough. Um, but uh, but in any case, I was completely swept up in this movie. I'd seen this story multiple times before, and this is I, – I think it's arguably the best. Now, I think there's an argument to be made. Again, I haven't seen the Streisand version, but between the three that I've seen, I would say the first one, good for them. Mm. <laughs> but it's pretty good. But it's Star Wars Born, 1950s, the most gorgeous. Judy Garland is holy shit. Like, Wow. Mm. James Mason is holy shit! Like wow, yeah. Um, and I, it, the pacing's actually really strong, except for that middle piece right there. I would, I really got, I thought like, oh, I might have to watch this in like chunks because it's so long. Yeah. I could not put it down. I had to watch it all. It was so beautifully constructed that I had to. Um, and then, but I think in the end, the Bradley Cooper version might be better paced overall, like in terms of like it doesn't have that dips in the middle, and the music is better. I well, think in that I, version I
1: think there are different kinds of movies yeah. uh, if if you're going for like a little bit more of a realist melodrama which is the yeah. modern way of making movies yeah. then yeah I think uh, uh, the 2018 A Star Is Born is definitely a, the tighter feature film yeah. but if you're going to uh, an old fashioned movie palace mm. to see a gigantic musical melodrama oh, this from is old definitely old the Hollywood, Hollywood this
0: is definitely the version you want this
1: is the version yeah. you want and and uh, you know what I think I prefer that uh, yeah. a, a We've had too much subdued. It's okay for us to be bombastic now,
0: mm-hmm. but it's bombastic without feeling insincere, which I think is yeah. amazing. Like it's well, and this uh, is really just I cannot get over how pretty this movie is.
1: It's really pretty, and uh, like I said, I appreciate the relationship because it's about two adults who mm-hmm. are relating to another rather than like one young person or an imbalance of
0: power. James uh, Mason is just wonderful. we've not gotten enough and, about him. He's wonderful, in this
1: and what I also appreciate that uh, he's the James Mason character in Urban Maine. He's sad without. Having like self pity, and he's he doesn't read as pathetic yeah. in the same way that the other Norman main characters in the other movies that I've seen. My
0: favorite bit mm. in this, I think, I think my favorite bit in the whole movie, if I were to if I were to pick, would be the bit where Judy Garland's just like made like her second movie. Everyone's saying she's going to be a star, and they're having like a screening at someone's house, mm-hmm. and. Norman Maine takes her aside and says, "Congratulations, you're a big star. I knew you could do it, and this is where I leave you." Mm. And she's like, "What? Why?" He's like, "Because No, I'm just an anchor. I I'm just yeah. I, yeah. I I don't have anything else to contribute. You got here on your own. I just introduced you to the right people so that you get noticed for being amazing. Uh, and that's it. I have nothing to contribute. I am an alcoholic. I am my stars is, is falling." I have nothing else to add to your career. And that's all I really wanted to do was to help you achieve the greatness I knew you had within you. Mm. And I feel good about that. I am not a good person. I've done a lot of bad things. And I feel like this is like the one thing I have done that is actually really positive. And I'm fine with that being it. Mm. And she tells him that she still wants him in her life. And he resists it. And it isn't until she, like, gives him, like, a beautiful declaration of love that Mm. he's just like, I mean, if you say so, it seems like a bad idea, but I would like that. That is so honest. (laughs) and She's honest about what she wants, even Mm. though she might be, you know, a little naive. He is telling her how bad it could get. And he's right. Um, But he's also, you know, allowing, you know, positivity into his life. He doesn't want to give up Mm. on life, but he was willing to for a bit because he thought it was the right thing to do. I love him for that scene. Everything else he does, as bad as it is, that scene makes him lovable mm-hmm. because he tried to pull himself out of it and say, and spare her from himself. And that is sad. That is melancholy. That is maybe depressive behavior. Uh, and it's indicative of the way his story will end, but Mason plays that so beautifully. <laughs> uh, this movie was originally about three hours long. And then they trimmed it down to a little under three hours. And then... the so stu- And then, then, then they trimmed it down again. Yeah. So cucur was behind trimming it down a little. Mm. But the studios apparently... And they had wonderful test screenings. Like, people loved this thing. And then the studios got kind of nervous or whatever. So they decided to cut down more. And based on... Like, I didn't see the, the cut version. That hasn't been, yeah. like, the, the version available for a long time. But... Uh, they they were able to restore most of it. I'll talk about that in a second. But uh, based on what I've read about what they cut, they cut stupid shit. <laughs> uh, they cut the well. absolute... They cut all of the stuff, or at least the majority of the stuff, that was about selling the relationship between Judy Garland and James Mason. There's this whole bit at the beginning where he tells her, I am going to make your career. But he's also drunk at the time. Hmm. And she believes him and she actually like puts her other career on hold to take a chance on him actually believing in her. And that's when, while he is drunk, the studio sends him off to a location shoot. And you see in this sequence that she is waiting for him, hoping he's going to find her again, but starting to lose confidence. But the, the energy that he gave her Hmm. is inspiring her to take a chance in her career. But you also see that this entire time, he is trying to find her. Mm. Because he was drunk and didn't know her address. <laughs> so he's trying to tell everybody, just call everyone on this street. I don't know, if they're not Judy Garland, hang up. I don't know, just keep trying. The fact that he tried so hard to find her, and the fact that he inspired her to, to pursue like her own career and believe in herself, sets the stage for people who genuinely care about and believe in each other. Mm. They cut that out. Just all of that. That was gone. (laughs) So who cares? That sucks! That's the foundation of their relationship. That shows that that their relationship
1: was based on something genuine. The cut that was around for the longest time was like a two and a half hour cut. It was like 154 minutes. Uh, And... I'm kind of glad that I waited until after, well, I mean, I was a kid at the time, but they yeah, restored like 80, early a lot of 80s. it in the early 80s. They restored it to the version that we, ascent- is the common version we see now. And well, they've we- restored that version a lot of times, so it's pretty seamless now. It's yeah. not like there's scenes that stand there's out. There's a longer. few,
0: well, there's there's two things that stand mm. out. One, there's a few scenes where the footage is clearly not, like, the original negative, and they just had to repair it as best they could. There's a scene where, like, Judy Garland is, like, working at, like, a burger joint. Mm. And that's, they got some footage of that, but it's not the cleanest footage. It's fine. What happened was they found the complete audio score, like the dialogue, the songs and everything, but they didn't always have the footage to fit in. So there are scenes, mostly pretty brief, but the scene I just described is actually quite long, uh, where they don't have that footage. And so they replaced the footage with stills, Mm. with the audio playing over them, which Obviously, is not the movie as originally intended, and yet it gives the film kind of a documentary feel for a second there. Like it's sort of like a, it gives it like, a, a like a memory book or something. It gives it a
1: showbiz feel. Yeah, it's
0: like, kind it, of like, it, it like, works. It, it's part, part of a good movie. Part, yeah. part
1: of the fame is being photographed, so they yeah. just sort of overlaid what might be a magazine spread yeah. over the drama.
0: They they also cut two numbers, which are back in the movie. Uh, one is this not particularly great number. Of Judy Garland, like, selling newspapers about why tomorrow is going to be great. Um, and the idea is that it's a dramatic counterpoint to as soon as she gets off stage, she breaks down crying because her life is so horrible because her mm. husband is an alcoholic. Um, and um, so uh, the number itself, you can probably cut that. I understand why it's there, but it's not a great number you can cut that. Mm. I'm glad it's there. It's, okay. it's good that it's there, but, like, I understand cutting that. There's another number that they cut, and I have no idea how they cut it. I have no idea why they cut it. I have no idea how they even managed to. Because it's the number... Here's the scene. It's a great scene. Judy Garland is singing a song. And she's doing it on a soundstage. And they're recording it, and they're getting everyone... You know, Mm. it's clearly for the the film. Giant soundstage full of orchestra. She sings her, her bit, and then they need to record some other stuff without her. So she goes off to the side... And talks to James Mason And we can't hear what they're saying We're just hearing the score play And the, the people playing And maybe the chorus But we see the people in the sound studio Are being, you know, whimsical pranksters And they, they without noticing They move the boom mic over To Judy Garland and James Mason So they, they can capture their dialogue So when they listen to the song back Ha 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 We're not listening to the song We're listening to the song With you talking over it And what they don't realize Is they captured him Asking to his, her to proposal, marry proposal, yeah Yeah Great bit. And they're kind of and listen, they're kind of embarrassed and like it's funny when she says no because you're a drunk, and he's yeah. like, We all know. <laughs> no one's hiding anything. Um, but it's awkward and sweet and funny and it's a great scene, and the music is directly embedded into that scene. Hmm. I don't know if they cut part of that. If they cut the whole scene, they're idiots. Because the scene is great. If they cut part of that scene, I don't know how the scene could have possibly worked. Because it's all constructed off of we're making the song and then the, the punchline is mm. we recorded you talking over it. So it wouldn't make sense if you cut the song part first. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Mm. Hollywood has been butchering movies since the dawn of movies.
1: Well, you say butchering. Uh, th- how many times do you think it's happened, though, where they've tested a film and it was really, really long and that was pure to the director's vision. Mm-hmm. But then they cut it down and it's actually you know Casablanca. Uh, th- there's I'm there's saying, lo- okay. lo- there's long versions that are true to the director's visions that probably suck. And, so, and that's fair. Uh,
0: and I'm not so saying. So of that-
1: course Hollywood has. That's what they do. They go around and they try to re-edit stuff. How many directors have Final Cut? There's maybe five working directors right
0: now. At least in the studio system. In, a, yeah. in the studio system, uh, not
1: Final Cut on their own movies. I want
0: to clarify. Mm. When I say butchering, I don't necessarily mean it for the worst. We go to a butcher to do a job, don't we? Mm. They butchered my meat. Well, you Great. See- you say you say butchering in the murder no, no, no. version I, of that I, word. I, I, I am, in this context I am, because I think, based on what I've read, it sounds like all the cuts were bad ideas in this case. Indeed, mm. that apparently bore out, and it led to some bad word of mouth, and the movie had some mixed reviews when it came out, mm. because they cut all the stuff that gave you an emotional connection to what was happening. That Um My point was twofold, and I was going to get to that, but my point is that sometimes Hollywood comes in and actually saves a movie that's fucking up. It happens a lot. We just don't hear about that very often because they're not one to advertise. Well, actually, this movie you like originally sucked. (laughs) But we decided to fix it. Apparently that happened with uh, The Godfather. Apparently the original mm-hmm. cut of The Godfather was a monster. Just it did not yeah, work. Yeah. And they and reworked the, it in the, the, post and fi- it finally the final found cut's a good. monster,
1: yeah. well, and, and, and but it's
0: but it's a good monster though. Yeah. Apparently well, the original cut wasn't great.
1: Same same with Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, a lot of uh, in fact there's even some rumors out there that Star Wars was saved in editing. Like yeah. that the original cut was just this disaster and nobody could even follow it. It can happen.
0: And, it can happen and they,
1: they kind of were able to, to slice it really skillfully so
0: that you got a film like Star Wars. John Patton Oswald has a great bit about film editing, which mm-hmm. I won't um, Oh, it's, it's, it's
1: hilarious! It's hilarious. He uses a lot of uh, crass sexual metaphors. Yeah, I'm, I'm
0: not going to dig in deep into the weeds on that because it's it's pretty crass. <laughs> but it is very apt as a metaphor. You should, I'm sure it's but on it, YouTube. App, uh, Patton Oswald editing. I'm sure you'd find it. Well, but it's the, great.
1: The metaphor he says is uh, it's it's like uh, it, it's it's like making a child uh, yeah. and. You'll notice that your favorite movies were all shot by men and then edited by women. Mm-hmm. It's like okay, a man impregnates a woman, but it's the woman's job to make that person.
0: Yeah, guy just comes in. and It's like, look what I did. Yeah, look, I'm I, like, look, I okay, do what, get look out of the room. Get out of the room. Look we what all I did have was so do. great. Okay,
1: now leave the room for nine months and let's see what I can make out of this yeah. shit. That it's a shot yeah. again.
0: It's a it's it's a metaphor for comedy, but uh, Bad Nozzle what sells it. But in any case, <laughs> editors take the tons of footage that people make and they make it somehow fucking work. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's a harder job than others. And sometimes it takes multiple goes, and yes, there are That's films that have been yeah. saved in editing. However, there is also a history going back really, really far of movies that were good, or were at least allegedly good, being butchered in a bad way. Mm. Magnificent yeah. Ambersons is a key st- example st- of this. where they didn't
1: understand or appreciate yeah. uh, how daring or strange a certain film was, so they mm. decided to cut it to make it l- look a little mm. bit more palatable or recognizable or mainstream. There's even
0: a bit in this movie where uh, he, he brings Judy Garland into the studio and their whole thing is, and there's a great crazy shot, looks right out of Brazil, where she's had people hovering over her, like like mad scientists and her lips are under a huge magnifying glass mm. <laughs> because they're, because what they're doing is we're going to find all your imperfections and we're going to fix them. And when she comes out, James Mason's like, what the hell did they do? They gave her a fake nose. Oh. They raised her eyebrows to oblivion. They gave her a terrible wig. Why? Because that would make her look like everyone else. Mm. That was the whole thing. Yeah. We don't, we're not looking for new. We're looking for what's popular now. That's the studio system. they business of making money, not taking risks and there's a bit later on where she meets like someone and she's like, "Oh, I assumed you'd be blonde." I don't know why. They they were going to make her blonde. That was the whole thing. So the studio is in the studios are in the business of reaching as many people as possible and they're going to smooth over things that seem risky. That's what they do. Hmm. Sometimes, more often than probably a lot of people would like to admit, the studio has a point or they fix something and yeah. it's it it can happen where a reshoot is a great great thing. Editors are for the most part like
1: long hard working professionals. They know yeah. what they're doing.
0: Yeah. Um, oh, did you notice no, no, uh, uh, a bit of editors. There's a yeah. bit where they're watching like a cut of a a uh, uh, a western. And did you notice there are at least two Wilhelm screams in this movie? I did. Yeah. This is before what? the Wilhelm scream was a gag too, so it's really funny. And
1: one was like full-throated in a closed room kind of Wilhelm scream yeah. too.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Mm. Um Anyway, uh, so Star Wars Born, uh, any last thoughts? I think, we, I think we've covered a lot of it. Uh, thanks uh, for
1: bringing up the Wilhelm scream. That was a point I was going to make and I'd yeah.
0: forgotten. Yeah, the Wilhelm scream, uh, you, you well, probably know most... it. it. goes, ah! And it's like the most famous scream ever, and they use it in most of the Star Wars movies. But mm-hmm. it didn't become a gag to use it over and over again until the 70s. Mm-hmm. So when you hear it before then, it's kind of funny because mm-hmm. they didn't use it all the
1: time. Uh, I, I feel like this is also a story of suicide. Uh, yes. all of the stars born stories end in suicide. And, uh, oh. it's, it's just sort of highlights just the tragedy of how, uh, having fame and then having that taken away from you and replaced with nothing because you don't know anything else mm-hmm. uh, is a way to just erode a person's soul. And these yeah. things end very badly for for people.
0: Yeah, James Mason's character ends this film mm-hmm. even in his marriage feeling very, very lonely and he becomes convinced at the end that all he is is like an albatross around her neck yeah. and, and she would be better off without him, which of course is not true, but it's intensely powerful to it's, watch. It's
1: intensely powerful and... When you realize that he's resolved to do what he does, oh, that's, what he's going to do, but he has a few final words with his wife, he yeah, talks ha- to some people a little once
0: bit, wants to to have a few nice memories, yeah, like and yeah, maybe yeah. he wants to hear her sing one last time. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is but the, I'm crying re- right now. It's thinking really, about it's, that, it's unbelievably oh heartbreaking.
1: I think it's handled with a lot more that's grace so than, than the two other versions I've yeah. seen.
0: No, that that scene broke me. Yeah, I cried so hard. Yeah, that, <laughs> was really, that was really. James Mason played that so beautifully. Yeah,
1: because yeah. <sighs> again, it, it's not this. It, it's not somebody wallowing in self pity. It's somebody who has yeah. actualized. Yeah. To use the suicide term. Yeah. And uh, and I think that's a lot more real. And a lot uh, in a weird way, this big glitzy Technicolor Hollywood picture yeah. is a little bit more honest about the suicidal state of mind than the one that is supposedly a little bit more gritty and down to earth.
0: I still think Bradley Cooper's version handled it rather mm. well, but it's it, regardless, it's tricky when you're doing a Star Wars more not to make it feel like a plot point. Yeah, mm. and I think Bradley Cooper's film fell into that a little bit more mm. than this, but it's always harrowing and tragic, and I think it's one of the reasons mm. why it keeps getting remade a lot is because that element of it feels so honest and earnest and earned. Mm. Um, I don't particularly care for the end of, of the stars is born's that I've seen, like the very, very end where mm. uh, usually what happens is uh, the star after the, the death of, uh, you know, her husband uh, is debating leaving the industry altogether mm. because it's horrible and she's grieving, and there's an amazing, there's this horrifying scene where uh, it's Jackson Maine's uh, funeral, and you see all these people outside, and you're like, oh, well they appreciated him in the end, mm. and then you realize, no, they're all there to get a picture of her, and you're like, oh my god, that is so fucked up. Yeah, that yeah. fucking that made I almost threw something at my TV. I was so <laughs> mad about that. It was it was like I was honest, I believed it, but it was so fucked up. Um, but she wants to leave, and then someone talks her into staying because you know. Her don't, don't
1: don't let his sacrifice be in vain yeah, know, yeah, yeah 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 yeah
0: mm-hmm. And the way that that's phrased is too often Bullshitty mm. Like it just sounds like Because in this one it sounds like she's being talked into it Specifically because people Like rely on her and need to profit off of her Like that's the thing like, You need to do this You need to do the work And I'm like you know what She really fucking doesn't does she Her husband just died She can take as much time off as she fucking wants and they're even ready. Like she was, they they have her go on to like this. It ends at another charity function, much like the one that began. It with like this whole like review of people coming on stage and doing shows, and she was supposed to come out. When we cut to that, when it's like she's dragged to it by her old friend, uh, they were already announcing that she wasn't there, and there was this general sense of well, who can blame her? And then she they forced her to come out anyway. I'm like, they were fine without you. No one no one demanded you be there. That wasn't like people were going to lose work if you didn't show up. It's like you could have taken the night off, hmm. but instead she goes out there and she says and she introduces herself not as Esther Blodgett, not as Vicky Lester, but as Mrs. Norman Maine, mm-hmm. which I guess is a sweet way of honoring your husband, but also makes it feel like and this I this was all him in the end, and I'm like that's a mixed well, that's a mixed message at best.
1: Look, coming from Judy Garland, who had several husbands in her life and who uh, were, as dramatized in the film Judy, a little bit uh, embarrassed to be associated with her, Mm -hmm. I think this is very empowering. This is a guy who was taken away from the system. She was probably uh, feeling a lot of pressure to be ashamed of him. And a lot – like he, he acts out in public. There's a scene – I think it's at a racetrack where he's just drunk in public and everybody says, oh, it's just that drunk again. Mm. How can she oh, stand him? Oh, it's so sad him? because he has yeah. gone into
0: detox before they even had that. So it's probably mm. a lot harsher than we would normally associate it with. He goes into detox. He comes out. He's actually – he's on the wagon. Mm. He's feeling good about himself. And he's at a racetrack and he orders a ginger ale. He's talking to a bartender. Bartender knows him because, of course, he does. And you know, we're just a ginger ale, and they talk about it. It's like good for you, man. And then he runs into like the studio fixer, who was responsible for keeping him like in the uh, audience's good graces, even when he was an alcoholic and ruining everything. And the guy just lays into him, and he lays into him so hard. And in the end, he's just like, "Hey, man, let's just not let's just be friends." And he's like, "We were never friends. You were always an asshole." And he ends up hitting Norman Maine and. Norman is on the ground, and instead of everyone going, oh, who hit that poor man? They go, oh, it's that alcoholic. Mm -hmm. He's probably just drunk again. And that's when he's just like, just get me a scotch. Bartender's an asshole, by the way. I know it's his job, but he should be like, at least, are you that, sure? You literally something. just said you're an alcoholic. You should at least ask, are you sure?
1: That's something that's always baffled me a little bit yeah. about bartenders in movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, when somebody says, I'm on the wagon, or they, like, the bartender knows they're on the wagon, and yeah, they come like in, they order a drink. The bartender never refuses. they always like, oh, well, I'm disappointed in you, but here's your bourbon. I mean, you it know, is it's...
0: it is your job to serve booze, but at the same not... time, it's like, he literally just said, mm. I'm on the wagon and I'm happy. Yeah. Maybe you you just check a little
1: Or how about the bartender just refuse
0: Well, I don't know he, Again, I don't know what the dynamic is a, Maybe his boss is an bar. asshole but I'm not the
1: one who's going to do it It, it would, would be nice It would yeah. be
0: nice to think that the bartender was a nice person But that is endemic of People enable this shit People yeah. don't care um, My job is to sit, My my job benefits from you being an alcoholic Which was true for a lot of people mm-hmm. And so they let that go, didn't they? They were monsters Um. Anyway, absolutely tragic Um but, um, yeah, anyway, anyway, that's The Star is Born, 1954. I think we've run well, through Well, what I was going go oh, yeah, to go back to was
1: um, because he was acting out in public and because he had this reputation of being a drunk and he realized that he's never going to get over his drinking problem, yeah. uh, she probably felt a lot of pressure because of his public persona. Ah. She's married to this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how can she stand him as a line of dialogue that's spoken aloud in that scene? Mm-hmm. So when she steps out and says, I am Mrs. Norman Maine, she's saying, I'm not ashamed of him. He has a bad reputation. Youth all think he's a drunken buffoon. But I was deeply in love with him. He helped me. I married him. He was
0: he was a human being. He had flaws, but there were very good things that you not appreciate. Yeah, no, I I think I think it's handled because it's the last line. mm -hmm. I think that could have been handled a little better instead of just going for the zinger. Maybe elaborating on it a little bit, giving her like a small monologue at the end or something like that. I think that would have. Sold that message a little stronger. Oh, I think just saying his name. Is no, like for me, for me, I always go like, eh, I kind of see what you're going for, but it reads kind of weird. Like that's how I am at the end of all of these, pretty all much. Right. But, <laughs> um, regardless, I see the point. I just think it's. I think by sending it that way, you leave it open for slight misinterpretation. Um well, it's, it's pretty clear. I think and it's pretty clear. I, I, we have we, mm. we've, we've had disagreements about what's clear and what's not. Well, what I suppose before. so. Um, in any case, Star was born. Uh, I'm really, really glad I finally saw this version. I want to thank uh, Nicky Bear uh, for, A, for sponsoring the show, and in particular uh, for uh, selecting this episode. It was really, really nice to you know fill this gap in my film knowledge. You know, Whitney and I have seen a lot of movies, but there's something we've all missed, mm-hmm. isn't there? Uh, so well, uh, this, actually, And this was
1: wonderful I'm glad for this and I'm glad for what we've been doing with the streaming club Our, our listeners have been voting on Classic films from various streaming services That we've uh, sort of put on ourselves to catch up on yeah. During quarantine and uh, as such, we've seen some classics I wouldn't have seen otherwise. Yeah. Uh, like I, I never knew that I would ever like The Searchers again.
0: Yeah, I was surprised. And at how The long Searchers that, that is actually now, really, yeah.
1: really good. Uh, yeah. We finally saw Marathon Man. I think both of us had seen it for the first time.
0: Yeah, I finally saw Moonstruck, and I was yeah, I was yeah. So, really fall for that. So yeah. yeah,
1: we're 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 really catching up on a lot of classics. This is an important, an important time. Well, I mean, it's never a not important time to do it, but this is a good time to do it because we have presumably. For yeah, a lot of
0: time inside. So, I, I, but people have been talking about, like, oh, no, all the blockbusters have officially left 2020, which they pretty much have. Like, as of yesterday, they announced that, yeah. like, we're not going to try to put Mulan out this year. We're not going to try to put Top Gun out this year. Mm. Um, and a lot of people are like, oh, no. And I'm like, you know, that that does suck. I'm sure a lot of people wanted to see those movies. I wanted to see a lot of those movies. But um, new but, films are coming out all the time. Yeah. Little I, tiny independent films, little tiny low-budget
1: films yeah. that... Ordinarily get tramped down by the conversation about the bigger ones
0: Exactly, the, the constant deluge of every week or every other week We have another giant movie, often from a big filmmaker or a big franchise And that we feel sort of obligated to let that control the conversation for a while And then, you know, when Black Widow comes out We'll have to do more rankings of the Marvel mm. Cinematic Universe And we'll have to do more retrospectives of these characters We've seen over and over again I'm not saying they're bad, but we just talk about them a lot this year, the, the the silver lining to what we're going through, and there's a lot of bad stuff, and we're all worried about the future of the theatrical industry, we're all worried about mm, various studios and, and uh, film projects that may or may not be able to come out, that's all a thing. But the silver lining that we can at least hold on to is this gives us an opportunity to focus on films that otherwise wouldn't get a lot of attention. Yeah. Every single week, there are new independent movies or smaller budgeted movies, and occasionally a couple of big ones. That do come out, and we're able to make the time for them when we would normally would have been seeing, I don't know, Top Gun twice in a, in a weekend. You know, right. like, we, we have the time, and we can take the time to catch up on other movies uh, that maybe we missed or just want to revisit. And uh, this uh, version of A Star is Born is pretty readily available. It's on Amazon for a small rental fee, um, but I would say it's definitely worth the price. Mm. Um, anyway, so that's A Star Wars Born, and that is your Critically Acclaimed Again, thank you to Nick Bear for this wonderful episode. I'm really, really glad we're able to do it. Uh, if you want to join our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, patrons at the top tier get to sponsor an episode. But beyond that, uh, you also get tons of exclusive podcasts, including podcasts about Star Trek, uh, Disney, the Oscars, Firefly. Other stuff as well. <laughs> There's a lot, basically. We make a lot of podcasts, and they don't all appear on this free feed. And we just want to say thank you, everybody, for listening, especially to thank you to all of our patrons. Uh, you can email us, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, if you want to talk about anything in this episode or anything at all, really. And we might read your emails on a future episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, We're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at Wayne DeBiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And remember, a, a star is born, I it's guess. It's all for you, Damien. E aí, o que